I want to take you uh, back to Second Chronicles chapter 7. <clears throat> hmm? Angel Eaton, we, uh, we prayed for her in, in staff meeting because it's just really looking bleak for her, but Kim as well. Just uh, a tough situation for them to be in. So keep them before the Lord. One of the great moments in Israel's history is recorded in uh, 2 Chronicles 6, the first part of 2 Chronicles, uh, and that is the dedication of their first temple, Solomon's temple, that took seven years to build. Probably would not be even feasible to try to fix a current value on that building with all the gold and the silver that was part of the decor, the covering of instruments. It, it would be impossible just about to, to put a value on it. But Solomon prayed in chapter 6 a prayer of dedication over that temple. <clears throat> and um, at the end of that prayer is where chapter 7 starts. And I, read, I want you to read along with me the first few verses of Second Chronicles. We know what's Second Chronicles 7.14, but track this with me just for a moment. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. It was too strong of God's presence. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped the Lord and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon, and get this, th these numbers, I guess, are accurate. <clears throat> king Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle. 22,000 head of cattle. But he's not finished. And 120,000 sheep and goats. They had to be a lot of people doing that. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of, of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, which were used when they gave thanks, saying... His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard. This is kind of interesting because there was so much sacrificing going on. The brazen altar, which was a typical place where the sacrifices were brought, could not handle the number of sacrifices. So Solomon just, right in the middle of the courtyard, consecrated a large area... And there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat portions. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days. Seven days this went on. And all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath and the Wadi of Egypt, a vast area of people came. It was a, an incredible celebration. And on the eighth day they held an assembly, for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festivals for seven days more. 
And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. There was so much burnt offerings and sacrifices, they, they couldn't even use the bronze altar. They had to make a place. Priests couldn't enter because of the glory of God. Now, why did the glory of God come in like that? Maybe it's kind of like the prayer that they approached the whole thing with. They, they just was appealing to God, and it seems as though after the glory of God, you know, there had to be sacrifices and burnt offerings on the altar for the fire of God to come down and consume it. So they already had probably sacrifices. It seems as though that what Solomon and them did was a response to the glory of God. Do you get that? That they had sacrificed and presented their praise to God. All of a sudden, the glory of God came and fire came down and people got on their faces. And it's like for 20 days, 23 days during that month, they were just celebrating the presence of God. All the sacrifices. It was beyond elaborate it was hard to it's hard for me to fathom because you know i was raised around cows and pigs and 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 it was just a one undertaking to kill one of them (laughs) i can't fathom how many people it took for twenty-two thousand heads of cattle but this is this is a nation responding to the presence of god now let's turn the clock back 70 years we're going to go back 70 years before this took place And, of course, we're going past David's time of reign. He only reigned 40 years. And Solomon hasn't been king that long. So we're going to go back. It's kind of like if we went back to 1946. How many know that 1946 is not that far back? (laughs) Some of us, you know, I was born in 51. I'm one of the late part of the baby boomers. But 70 years is not that far back, right? I'm going to track you back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 to something that happened with another king, not Solomon, but the first king of Israel, King Saul. Saul was a Benjamite. He was, God gave in to the people's request that they have a king like their neighbors. And Benjamin was not the tribe that kings should come from. Judah was the tribe. So God gave them an incredible warrior of a man, an imposing figure of a man, Saul, to be their king. So, in chapter 15, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel to go and tell King Saul that God wants him to muster an army, a significant army, and to go and attack Amalek, the Amalekites, and to completely wipe them out it's kind of interesting if you read this, because the Lord said, because they waylaid Israel when Israel was coming out. They, they ambushed Israel when Israel was coming up out of Egypt. And God said, it's time for them to meet their judgment. So he told them, this is one of the places where it's kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around because it seems so barbaric. But God told them to go in and wipe out the whole place, animals, people, completely. So Saul mustered over 200,000 military soldiers, foot soldiers. 20,000 of them came from Judah, which really probably tells us that David's older brothers were probably involved in that military campaign because we knew they were in the military because of 
when Goliath was challenging it. So here's 1 Samuel 15. And so Saul takes this army and he goes to attack Amalekites. And he completely destroys the place. But he comes back and he's taken Ag- Agag, the, the king of Amalek, captive, as a live captive. And then he's bringing animals back with him. Some of the best of the animals they saw. And when, when he was coming back, God spoke. I'm just paraphrasing. I'm going to read from parts of um, 1 Samuel 15 in just a moment. First 12 verses, I'm just paraphrasing. God speaks to Samuel and says, Saul has disobeyed me. I, I regret that I even made him king. He's disobeyed me. And so the next morning, 1 Samuel 15 says, Samuel gets up, goes out to meet him where he thinks he's coming back, and he's not there. And they tell him he's headed to Carmel, and in Carmel he erects a memorial to himself. And he heads on down to Gilgal. And so Samuel is in pursuit because he's angry. When the Lord told him, says, Saul has disobeyed me. And so Samuel went after him. Samuel was upset with him. And so in verse 13, in 1 Samuel 15, is the conversation they have once Samuel catches up to Saul down in Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. And he puts, Your God... But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy Israel. Those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Samuel, or Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag the king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now you have 70 years later this enormous sacrifice of animals that God accepts, blesses, and, and he, it's part of the worship. But here sacrifice was not going to be worship. He had, they had animals ready to sacrifice the Lord, but God wasn't interested in that. King Saul's a different story from King Solomon, isn't he? And what reveals so much is, what, what can we learn from the situation here? What can we learn from Saul and Samuel's exchange here? If you just kind of look at it as a whole, there's certain phrases you can zero in on, but David is not even in the picture yet. 
Chapter 16 is when David becomes part of this drama. Because once God rejects Saul, he tells Samuel in chapter 16, get your horn full of oil, stop crying over Saul. I got someone else to replace him. You go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and one of his boys, you anoint them. So David does, David's not even in the picture in chapter 15. Look at verse 22. I, I stopped right before I read that. I want you to see what Samuel's reply to what Saul said. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? He, he's asking him. He's putting in a question. Does the Lord de- delight in sacrifices and offerings more than obedience? And before Saul can answer, Samuel answers. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. We all know that very familiar, don't we? Well, what about verse 23? Here is God really x-raying what the problem is. It's not sacrifices. It's not, it's not, not following instructions. There's a spirit of rebellion. And he says this, For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel tells him to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Does God take delight in sacrifices? Yes, when they're offered rightly. But no, when they're not offered rightly. You think about the start of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah has one of the longest books in the Bible, 66 chapters. A lot of prophecy in there, right? A lot of word from the Lord. Do you realize how his prophecy started? Let me just start with verse 11 in Isaiah 1. You can turn there if you want to, but listen to what God tells the people. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. You think sometimes the Lord would like to just get through to us, stop it. <laughs> whether it's complaining, whether it's out in left field somewhere, we've just gotten distracted. It's just, it, I think we would hear, he says, stop it right now. I don't want that. He says, I don't want your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocation. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. You kind of get the idea that God is not happy with them. He said, I hate hate your gatherings. They have become like a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And who knows what Isaiah 118 says. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. After this stinging examination of how they're living their lives and coming to God, he says, I'm weary of all of it. But, but if you will come and meet with me, I'll wash all that away. I'll clear everything away. Isn't that amazing? What does God want? He wants the internal nature of us to be right with him before we bring anything externally to him. He's much more concerned with the heart, isn't he? Last week, last Wednesday, I asked you the question, what do you want? What do you want? And if the Lord stood in front of us, And he looked at his individual and says, what do you want? Well, let me pose a different question to you. What does God want? What do you think the Lord wants? I think he wants heartfelt obedience. Not a rigid adherence to rules. Saul of Tarsus was meticulous in keeping the rules. So much so that he was doing everything he can to stamp out this new thing called the way. He thought he was doing God's service. But he was actually attacking the purpose of God when he was attacking the church. The reality is this. Obedience is not going to come from a heart of selfishness and a prideful heart. Remember what Samuel said to Saul that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and the pride that comes into the heart of a person is God rejects that. So what God wants is heartfelt obedience. Agag and the animals were like trophies to Saul. Why did he bring Agag? He said, I've destroyed all of them but Agag. Well, that's not all. Now, at the end of the chapter, Samuel takes care of that little problem himself. But he disobeyed God. And he tried to kind of excuse why he did it by saying, but the animals I brought back, we're going to sacrifice them to God. We've dedicated it to the Lord. That makes it okay. And here is this rationale that if the result is good, then whatever we use to get to the result, is okay. The end justifying the means. If the end is we want to have a celebration like Solomon and them did, we have a sacrifice and, and offer things to God, but God says, I told you not to do that. I don't want that. 1 Samuel 15, 24, <clears throat> if you're still there, follow this with me. And Saul said to Samuel, this is, this is Saul's response to Samuel. Samuel saying what he did to him. Saul said, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now, what is that? 
He's the king. He's blaming his soldiers for his disobedience. He said, the men wanted it, and so I, I was afraid of them. You was afraid of them? Now I beg you, forgive my sin. He's talking to the wrong person about forgiving his sins. And he said, come back with me. Go with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul grabbed hold of the hem of his robe. It's actually the fringe of his garment, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people, before Israel, come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. What do you make of verse 30? Verse 30 is a common malady. When people are more concerned about their image with people instead of their image with God. He's saying he sinned. And, and then he expects Samuel to treat it as though it's all done. That, sh- that, should, that should take care of everything. Now come with me so that I can worship the Lord. He said, I'm not going with you. You've rejected the Lord and the Lord rejected you. And he tore Samuel's coat. And then he said, but please go with me before the elders of Israel and before Israel. Go with me and worship. Now, the, the way this chapter ends is really sad because Samuel went back home and never saw King Saul again. And it said that he mourned. This was his friend. He loved Saul. He loved King Saul. He anointed him to be king. But this was a tragedy to Samuel. There was another king to be chosen, David. And David would have his own collapse, wouldn't he? A man after God's own heart, which shows that no one is above failure, doesn't it? And yet, when David repented, he accepted responsibility for his action. Saul was continually trying to push off. I don't know if you've read the, the short little book by Gene Edwards, The Tale of Three Kings. But it's a masterpiece of different, a different spirit between Saul, David, and Absalom is the other, the one who wanted to be king, that Absalom had a spirit like Saul. And David's spirit was different from those two men. And David didn't try to pass the blame off on Bathsheba. He could have said, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. She shouldn't have been out there bathing. You know, she ought, she ought to know my balcony overlooks that. She, she, she was just, she knew what she was doing. David didn't say that. David could have. David, David could have pushed it off on someone else. You know, I, I didn't really mean to do that. But he owned up to it. And, and the conversation between Nathan and David is so much different than the conversation between Samuel and Saul. David immediately, when, when Nathan laid it on him, you're the man. 
David, you're the man that took that little lamb. That man's only wife. You've got, you've got wives in the palace. You didn't need another woman. And you took the only woman that man had. And David says, you're right, I've sinned. He owned up to what he did. It's kind of like Chuck Swindoll said when, you know, God's grace forgives you. It just means he doesn't kill you. And when David repented, Nathan said, okay, you won't die. <laughs> but you're not getting off scot-free. Right? There's consequence now and on down the line in your family. You have, you have introduced the sword. He even said this. Larry and I was talking about this the other day, just going through some things. And, and, and one of the real harsh, stinging things that Nathan told David that not only did you kill your, one of your best men, you used an enemy's sword to do it. And he even sent the conspiratorial letter by his main man trusting him not to open it. And so what does David do when, when he recovers from his collapse. One of the things he does, he writes a song about it. How about that? How many of us want to write a song about our worst day? <laughs> and let everybody sing it in church. It's one of the songs in the songbook of the Hebrews, Psalm 51. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful heartfelt cry of David to God. And David is not passing anything off. He says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Created me a clean heart. Isn't that some great language? Renew a right. Don't take, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You could take everything, but don't take your presence from me. I can't live without your presence. And then he says this in Psalm 51, 16. And I'll finish up with this. It fits what we've been talking about. Psalm 51, 16. This is David telling God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it to you. Do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. And this is so neat. This is how God remedies and anoints worship again when someone is sincerely from their heart saying, this is how it is, Lord. You don't want me to bring animals. You don't want me to bring a, a heifer or a goat or a lamb or a ram. You want me to bring my brokenness as the sacrifice my heart, my contrition, my repentance. But look what he says when you do that. God accepts the external display of worship. I love verse 19. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me read that out of the message. And Brandon, you can come. Back to the microphone. This is the message, Psalm 51, 16. 
Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. Make Zion the place you delight in. Repair Jerusalem's broken down walls. Then you will get real worship from us. Acts of worship small and large, including all the bulls they can heave onto your altar. So what does the Lord want? What does He want from us? I think He wants us to be transparently honest with Him and tell Him if we're discouraged, say, Lord, this has really been tough. Not to gloss over our low points, but to bring it to him and say, help me. Help me. Maybe you're weary. You know, I, I don't think salvation is emotional. I don't think salvation is mental. I believe all of those are involved, but salvation is the disposition of the heart that reaches out to God for remission of sin. And something supernaturally happens inside of us. Right? It's not a mental thing that all of a sudden you have a different mindset. There's something dynamically, when the Spirit of God comes to live within us, there's something dynamically that changes. Where have we fostered the growth of that? Because we can let the externals start defining us. Our music, our worship, And when we get there, maybe he's like, I don't like that. (laughs) You know why? Because your heart's not in it. You know songs by heart. And you're just singing them like a robot. Where's your soul? Where's your spirit? And And if I could hear God say something to us, what he wants, I think he would say, I want your hearts. I want your soul." I want your love from deep inside of you to come out of this, this temple, this body that we live in, and give him what he deserves. And we can't give him what he deserves. All we can do is do our best to give him what he deserves. Stand with me. If you need prayer tonight, I want you to come and just stand here because we're going to pray for you. Last week we prayed for Ron and Kay's backs and they're doing better. We prayed for some other people with some ailments. I hope, pray that they're doing better. But if you got aches and pains or you got a family situation, you know, we pray for every family in the church every Sunday night. We pray for children, grandchildren. We, we just cover your families. And we want God to do great things in our families. I believe God is working in our lost relatives. He just gave me a confirmation this week, a card I got from one of my cousins in Indiana. I I almost shouted. I told Brenda, I said, yes, God is working in their lives. This is incredible. Just a couple words that she said. I said, all of those visits and all those prayers and all those conversations... I know God is, he may already have them, I don't know. 
But if you're, if you're discouraged and praying for people that you've been praying for their salvation, let's bring that to the Lord tonight. Let's come and stand here. Lord, I'm not going to follow my emotions. I'm going to follow the promise of your word. If Paul can say, Lord, my heart's desire and prayer to you is that Israel be saved, then we can say, Lord, my heart's desire and prayer to you is for my family to be saved. Lord, I just 